Welcome back, Chad. We're almost to real basketball. How's that feel? Feels good. We got we're almost to real basketball in the timeline of Timberwolves history and preseason basketball is just around the corner. It's true. We're getting there. Uh, upcoming this weekend, uh, if you're listening to this on Monday, the game most most likely happened already, but the Wolves have their first preseason game, which will be on FSN, which is uh, very exciting. We haven't watched real Wolves basketball since March, so I'm more than excited to sit down, put on some Jordans, watch the game, and uh, just really uh, see what this new team, new team looks like. Some might even say we haven't watched real Timberwolves basketball since <laughs> 2004. Yeah. <laughs> but... <laughs> But that that's a snide comment. <laughs> there have been there have been moments, Chad. There have. Obviously, my second favorite player didn't play in two thousand four. That's he right. Play, so <laughs> we had about half a season of playoff competitive basketball in two thousand nine, but And then we had the Jimmy and Yeah, that, we did. That whole year, which wasn't as joyful as it should have been for getting back to the playoffs. But. It's just hard when your second most successful team ever is just no fun. Right. But at least Jimmy and Derek Rose are both gone now. And if any of you yeah. are Rose lovers, you can find me at Ruby Oops and send me all your hate <laughs> because I'm not. I'm gonna. I'm gonna feed on that hate. <laughs> well, I would say more the one that would bother me. Like, what if that team had kept Rubio and just not brought in Teague? That would have been a lot more fun team. Yeah, it had to be. And, and Rubio wouldn't have been any different. I mean, we'll, we're way down the path before we get to that era, but. Rubio, like that always stuck in my craw where they got rid of Ricky allegedly because he wasn't a three point shooter. They bring in Teague, who had a higher three point percentage, but shot less of them. Yeah. Refused to shoot. So it's a what's the point? And then everything else, Ricky did better. Man, how many open threes did Teague just refuse to take? So annoying. (laughs) I mean, a great guy from all accounts and yeah, a good yeah, yeah. interview, good quote, and He's I love listening to what he All yeah. he ever posts on Twitter is WWE stuff, right. which like, I'm all <laughs> down for. But um, beyond that, like on the court, I just, yeah. I mean, and maybe it's unfair because you're comparing him to yeah. his predecessor, Ricky Rubio. So it's like, okay, well, that's, you're never going to live up to that. I mean, D'Lo would have probably had a similar problem, even though he's he's a better player than Ricky Rubio. He's just... Mm-hmm. You know, all right. I digress. We do digress. <laughs> the only news of the week, the big news of the week, coming out from uh, John Krasinski at the, at the Athletic again, uh, Scott Layden, after four years with the Minnesota Timberwolves, has mutually agreed to part ways. He uh, came in with Tibbs uh, when Tibbs took over as Pobo and coach, and was coming in as a GM to hopefully be a a calming voice in the room to kind of level him out and do some of the work, but. Uh, didn't seem to turn out that way when he and Tibbs were here together. Yeah, I mean, I think anybody who followed Tibbs kind of knew that he was going to dominate the room, you know, and it was kind of, he was going to, it was going to be his way or the highway. And so I think, I guess I didn't expect much out of late. I didn't, I mean, he was sort of an afterthought during the Tibbs era just because you knew he wasn't really making any decisions. I kind of looked at him and I was like, well, he's probably the guy that's like, no. That won't work, Tibbs. That doesn't fall under the cap. You know, that, that's mm-hmm. kind of what I pictured. And I'm sure that's oversimplifying it. I'm sure Tibbs had a much better handle on the cap than I'm making out. And I'm sure Layden offered more than just that. But um, I think by all accounts, good guy, was uh, loyal, was, you know, wasn't there to, to disrupt things. He was there to make the best out of whatever the plan was and, you know, kind of take the orders and, you know, make it work. So I think it worked for t- when Tibbs is here, and it, it probably was beneficial to Rosas. And it makes sense that he's leaving now. Is 
I think it was John Krasinski wrote the article in the athletic, but talked about this year being, you know, with COVID and Layden being the fact that he lives in New York and it making it difficult for him to have to travel back to Minneapolis quarantine and all that kind of stuff. And then you have the season delayed. So like his contract ends in April anyway, which will be middle of the season for this season mm-hmm. at, at this point. So it's not shocking that they, they came to this mutual agreement. No, I saw lots of people respond this morning by just joking that they thought this had happened two years ago because Layden's been so quiet ever since uh, Rosas took over. But, um, but yeah, so he's he'll be moving on. He seemed to be a great guy. He was respected by Ethan Casson, the the CEO of the Timberwolves, uh, because he was actually in the room when they let Tibbs go. So he was kept around. He was given decision making authority after Tibbs left and. Uh, even though he wasn't tabbed to be the new Pobo uh, moving forward, when Rosas got the job, he was willing to take a demotion to not be the, the strongest voice in the room anymore and stick around for a couple more years. So I'm sure a lot of that had to do with the fact that he got paid $2 million a year to stick around. But um, but yeah, with him moving on, it seems like that Rudy Tomjanovic signing that we talked about last week uh, really is feeling that veteran role in the front office staff. Yeah, and you know it's probably a more appropriate role where he's not carrying the the GM title like Layden was because I mean Layden wasn't really the de facto GM here either. It mm-hmm. was Rosas and Tibbs before that, so um, Rudy's going to have a more appropriate title for what it is he's going to be doing with his duties. Yeah, I, I, it's clear Rosas is looking to have somebody who's got more experience than him to help with his group who's all relatively young. Um, and I think that's wise. So, you know, I wish Layden well, I think he did his job. I, I, you know, I don't have any complaints about his tenure here. I think that the, the biggest complaint you could have is maybe when things blew up with Jimmy, um, and that they were sort of stubborn and moving them and kind of let that, mm-hmm. you know, seep into the team that year. Fester. But I think, yeah, Fester for sure. And I think that was more of a tips thing than it was Layden because obviously Layden had no, loyalties to jimmy it was that was really a tips guy obviously um so i don't think you put that at layden's feet and you know he was not the most dynamic in terms of gms he wasn't you know the rosas where he's like just comes in everything's gone and he's rebuilding it in his image i mean he was more of a you know tweaker than Mm -hmm. he was a rebuilder but you know like you said he had had the respect i mean he was part of that spurs team before he came here which obviously they had lots of success um, his time in Utah. I mean, he was the guy that scouted John Stockton before anybody really knew who he was, and he scouted Carmel and he brought those two guys in it. You know, so he had a lot of success there. I mean, his years in New York were much different than that. <laughs> but um, you know, I, you know, he's good solid run for him. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're gonna have one complaint about his time in Minnesota, it would be after Tibbs left and he just kind of sat on his expiring contracts at the trade deadline and kind of felt like he wasn't allowed to make any moves there. And whether or not that was a a directive from Glenn knowing that he wasn't going to be the guy long term or Glenn not knowing what the financial status of the team was but it really feels like the team got set back just maybe a half step by the fact that he couldn't move, make any moves at that deadline yeah agreed I don't think that was necessarily his desire mm-hmm. look at looking at what he did like in New York he was the opposite he was trading away all the draft picks for old guys so I think it was probably more of a directive like look you, you know we we're going to go into another rebuild here let's not trade expirings for committed contracts when you know we don't know what the the future of this team's going to look like in a year or two because look let's be honest that might have 
really tied Rosas's hand had he made those kind of moves. Yeah, and just not having the space and the flexibility they did, absolutely. But with Scott Layden coming over to the Timberwolves four years ago, that was not the first time that there were rumors that Scott Layden was going to come to the Timberwolves. In fact, back in the 80s, after we had been granted a franchise, after Minnesota was going to be getting the Timberwolves, they had to put together a staff. And one of the first roles they needed to find was the director of player personnel, which is not a title I'm familiar with. It's not Pobo, it's not GM, but it's, it's what they rolled with back then. And uh, there were reports in the Star Tribune saying that Scott Layden was actually the leader in the clubhouse while he was with Utah until he decided to turn around and head back and continue building up that franchise. Yeah, and, and you know, I think his dad was coach or his dad was with Utah, right? And I think that's how why he was in Utah to begin with and probably why he stuck around there, um, just the familiarity with the organization and whatnot. But yeah, it's it's funny how many of these guys keep coming back up. There are lots yeah. of names. Lots of names we'll hear today that uh, go from one place to another and follow one person or end up on the roster at some point in the future or uh, or even related to future Timberwolves. It's just kind of lots of names that pop up decade after decade in the Timberwolves uh, history. I don't know how common that is. It doesn't seem like it'd be relatively common, but it is bizarre how many times you know, you're like renaming like Tibbs. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's another one. He was on the coaching staff and then you know, several years later comes yeah, back. Comes back. So, yeah. So it's, it's kind of funny how this team operated and that you can't blame it. I mean, I, I know the joke about Glenn Taylor and the, the clubhouse and stuff, mm-hmm. but that was, that was pre both these predated Glenn Taylor. So you can't just lay it at Taylor's feet either. No, it was a strongly uh, Minnesotan appeal to bring in guys. You knew guys you were familiar with uh, probably fostered by Harvin Marv. If you want to know who Harv and Marv are, learn a little bit more about their history, go back to episode two of Howl History, and we have about an hour on Harv and Marv last week. So uh, if you uh, are a little bit unfamiliar and you're just picking this up now, join us. Join <laughs> us for the deep dive. Well, yeah, and we do have uh, two positions here to fill on our new Wolves staff here, Chad. Uh, we have a newly appointed franchise, an expansion franchise, and they have to fill a, a head front office position and a head coach. They were filled by Billy McKinney. Uh, who had come from the Chicago Bulls, Bulls, and Bill Musselman, who was a very familiar name around Minnesota. Uh, we took we split this up a little bit this week. Chad did most of the research on Billy McKinney, and I uh, I took Bill Musselman. So we're going to do kind of a, a two-by-five here, five questions each, five interesting uh, subjects, topics that we found while doing our research, and we'll just kind of walk you through, we'll jump around and walk you through the interesting tidbits of uh, of these guys so that you're just as familiar with them as the casual fan would have been in 1988 when they got their, their gigs with the Timberwolves. So, Chad, you ready to get, get rolling here? Yeah, and probably more familiar because I don't think <laughs> the director of player personnel in uh, 1989 were, were the celebrities that they are today. <laughs> no, I, uh, I was going through, scrolling through the Strib archives, and uh, he didn't even get an article. He just got a, a, a note in Sid's rantings. You know, what's funny is that's kind of the way his career went. Yeah. You know, he, uh, Bill McKinney played at Northwestern. He uh, showed up to practice one day, and the equipment guy did not even believe he was actually on the team. He actually had to go chase down an assistant coach just to vouch for him just to get his gear so that he could practice with the team. <laughs> but he did play at Northwestern. He was the did kind of leave as the all-time leading scorer. He was a guard. He was six foot, 160 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and he jokes about that in articles I read from back during that time about how he was, he could, even when he played in the NBA, he could walk down the street, people, nobody recognized him. Um, he had another 
instance where he was in college and the bus driver kind of shouted to him to help load up the bus with all the gear, not knowing he was a player. And so he happily helped out. And then he went out that night and scored 31 points and got back on the bus. And the bus driver was apologizing profusely because he had no idea he was actually one of the players on the team. So, um, you know, I think back in the eighties, you know, six foot tall, 160 pound guy, you're not going to see him walking down the street and make you go, Oh, I bet you that guy plays in the NBA somewhere. Right. (laughs) Right. So that makes sense. Um, he did play for a number of seasons for the Bulls. Uh, he played with Michael Jordan for two years. And then he was given the opportunity to come back and make the team. And they kind of made him a promise that if he didn't make the team, they would give him an assistant coaching position. Um, and he did end up making the team. But midway through the season, he decided to retire. And they did kind of put him into that assistant coach position as well as scout. Um and that's that's, that's, a, that's an of, interesting path. Yeah. Especially for a guy that young, right? Like he was really yeah. still within a playing age. He still could have been what most guys in there could have been in the peak of their careers, you know, like 30 years old, mm-hmm. 31 years old, maybe. Um, yeah. You see and, some guys slide in now where it's like, hey, we're going to put you into a, a player development role on our coaching staff where we just want you to, to be around and help teach some of these guys. And that'll be your first in- introduction into kind of coaching or front office but we don't like you don't have any skills yet to actually coach or be in a front sure. office we just want you to be there for practices and help teach guys a few things and then you'll learn the ropes as you go along but yeah i was kind of thinking of like guys like elton brand today who, yeah you know, i don't i don't recall if he coached ever if he just went right into no i think it was straight front, front office. office yeah yeah and then you have other guys like sam cassell's coach i mean there's lots of players that end up coaching a little bit chauncey billups has been trying to get mm-hmm. coaching and front office positions for a number of years, but yeah, I mean, back then, I mean, it wasn't like it was uncommon. There were other former players that were, were moving into those roles, but for what was uncommon was how young he was when he did move into that role. Um, well, even which, in just going from assistant coach to, to scout, to be moving around and traveling and taking a look at other teams and actually bringing back the reports is just such a different job to look at it, it analytically like that. That one, I, you know, and looking back, cause even kind of doing a little bit of, homework on Scott Layden after his announcement. He kind of had the same role in Utah. He was assistant coach and scout. Um, so it might have just been a sign of the times from back then. You know, remember last week when we talked about the, not many teams were even profitable. So a lot mm-hmm. of these guys probably did a double, double duty um, and kind of wear multiple hats and, and do whatever they could just to kind of make the keep the, thing, the organization running. So I, that, I don't I can't say that with certainty, but just the two guys I kind of looked at this week, both kind of fell into those same exact roles. But yeah, that, that second, my second interesting point though, was with, when he was with the bulls, he spent more of his time as a scout and he was kind of that first guy that started to scout kind of an unknown player at that time in Scotty Pippen. Not a lot of teams were aware mm-hmm. of Scotty Pippen or, you know, he certainly wasn't a, a top prospect coming into the draft. So not at a central Arkansas. No. And so that kind of shows you the depth of his, you know, basketball acumen of, you know, to, to spot. Anyway, and it's not all him. I know Jerry Krause was also looking at Scotty very early on, but um, it, it kind of just shows you, and, and you'll see this throughout McKinney's career. He, he did seem to be a fairly good judge of talent, you know, even in his days in Detroit, which I'll talk about later, but he, seem to have a good eye for 
guys that could play basketball. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. So the Wolves tab McKinney out of Chicago, and at the same time, like I said, they were trying to take a look at a, a head coach position. Bob Stein, who was Darren Wolfenson's uh, son-in-law, was the president of the team, and he was trying to fill both positions. And McKinney came in uh, about one month before they filled the head coach position, but. Stein had been doing interviews for a while and it was really his decision the whole time. So the finalists for the head coach position with the Wolves came down to Bob Weiss, Bill Fitch, and George Carl, along with a, a famous Minnesotan uh, historical presence named Bill Musselman. Uh, Carl was the only one who was added after McKinney was was named as the uh, director of player personnel. So he might have had a, an eye there too uh, to really add him to the list. But it really seemed like Stein was leaning towards either Bob Weiss or Bill Musselman and as most of us know, he tabbed Musselman to be the the first ever head coach of the Minnesota Timberwolves. Musselman had a, a long and storied career in basketball, a kind of an infamous career as well due to some other events that, uh, <laughs> that we'll talk about. But um, he actually was born in Worcester, Ohio, and one of his uh, boyhood friends was, was Bobby Knight, um, who grew up in the town over. They played high school football against each other. They, they competed Makes a sense, lot. Makes right? Yeah. Very, Very similar. similar. Yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and back, actually, when they both joined the Big Ten, when Bobby Knight joined Indiana and uh, Bill Musselman joined Minnesota, they completed in their very first Big Ten games against each other. They had their inaugural seasons together that year. So, But yeah, as Musselman went through, he, he coached in many different levels of basketball. He started at the age of 24 with, in coaching high school, and then he moved on to a lower-level college position. He coached in the WBA. He coached in the ABA. He coached at the U of M, so for some Big Ten basketball. He then moved on to the CBA and eventually the NBA. Um, so he, he really went through the, the, the rankings of all of the different leagues to work his way up and get his, himself the, the opportunity. Um, and the Timberwolves weren't his first NBA position. Uh, that uh, came with the Cleveland Cavaliers, and we'll talk about that as well, but but yeah, this is a guy that really just uh, put in the time and made his way up. So he was uh, famously competitive and to, yeah, almost I mean, to a detriment. Yeah, so he certainly deserved it. I mean, when you told me that George Carl's on the list, I didn't, I didn't find that when I was mm-hmm. my research. So I was really bummed because <laughs> <laughs> George Carl was one of my favorite coaches of the well, probably everybody's one of everybody's favorite coaches of the '90s. But um, just one of my favorite personalities, and you know, I loved his everything about his his style of play that his teams had and um obviously the Gary Payton Sean Kemp like what that could have been like it, it just he, I could have seen George Carl coming in and being you know having a 10 15 year run here you know yeah i mean he stuck around for a while he's still a very popular name among the nba and um it's just you see some of these names and you're like oh man i actually ran across a note that after Musselman had been signed so after both these guys had been signed there was a year before the Timberwolves actually had games. So they were both paid the first year of their contracts to be with the team before the Timberwolves actually had a, a games in any season. Um, so in the 88-89 season, when they weren't weren't playing yet, they were just out scouting. And one of the games that they went to uh, to scout was actually a game um, between the Rapid City Thrillers in the CBA and uh, the Albany Patroons, both of which were teams that Bill Musselman had coached previously. But the, the Rapid City Thrillers were coached by Flip Saunders with Eric Musselman, Bill's son, as an assistant coach. And the Patroons were coached by George Carl at the time. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I knew the Rapid City ones were just because I remember from my Flip background knowledge. And I remember Eric Musselman on a Barrero 
um, mm-hmm. show one night, one time talking about it was after Foot Pass. That's actually when it was, and him telling some stories about their time coaching together there. So I, I knew that, but I guess I didn't know George Carl. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to talk about the uh, the Albany Patroons uh, coaching lineage, it went from Phil Jackson to Bill Musselman to George Carl. Yeah. Somebody there knew how to hire. Huh? Yeah. Apparently. How did that guy not get a job in the NBA? <laughs> just identifying coaching talent. That's all it is. Right. Yeah. yeah, just make him our you know, president of basketball operations and then let the coach pick the player. Yeah, and then uh, Rapid City went from Bill Musselman to Flip Saunders to Eric Musselman as head coach. So just kind of names all over the place that were just so yeah. tied into that world. But but yeah, so, so Chad, I mentioned that Musselman was famously competitive. And actually the book that I got most of my information from, I found... I was able to find on a secondhand bookseller site online a biography of Bill Musselman, which was written when he got the job with the Timberwolves. So it's called, okay, the, the title was apparently written by Leslie Nope, um, and you don't understand the reference because you've never seen Parks and Rec, but anybody that has uh, will get it. But it's called <laughs> Obsession, Timberwolves Stock the NBA, Bill Musselman's Relentless Quest to Beat the Best. And it's just, and but then you open up the cover, and all of a sudden it's Timberwolves stock the NBA obsession, and then you turn one more page, and it's Timberwolves stock the NBA obsession, Bill Musselman's relentless quest to beat the best, and then you go over to the side, and it just says obsession Timberwolves stock the NBA. So I really have no <laughs> idea what the actual title of this book is, and it's driving me crazy. <laughs> but um, well, you could ask them. You could ask them, but it sounds like they might not be sure what the title is. Either. Yeah. So, Bill Heller, I, if you're listening, please let me know what the title of your book was because I'm I'm still very confused. But I pulled out some of my favorite quotes by by Bill Bunselman, uh, just about his competitiveness. And I pulled out so I got three of those, and I pulled out three quotes by Michael Jordan about his competitiveness. I'm going to give you a little okay. quiz. I'm going to read you a quote, and you have to tell me if it's Bill Musselman or Michael Jordan. Are you ready? I am. I'm ready. Let's do this. All right. Quote number one. To be successful, you have to be selfish, or else you never achieve. And once you get to your highest level, then you have to be unselfish. Stay reachable, stay in touch, don't isolate. I'm going to say that one's a muscleman one because I don't know that I don't know that Jordan cared about looking unselfish because I think he, I don't know. I think it, I'm going to go muscleman. That was Jordan. Wow. I know. Oh for one already. All right. Now, now I know there's still three muscle men ones. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> All right. Compete with me and you pay the price. Challenge me and I'll beat you. I'll keep beating you. Keep pounding you. That's what yeah. competition is. That's Jordan. That is muscleman. Wow. I, I know. swear I read that before from Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> you are O for two, Chad. Yeah, these are tougher than I thought. Yep. All right. Two goats. If you accept the expectations of others, especially negative ones, then you will never change the outcome. I'm going to say that's Musselman. That was Jordan. Jeez. Oh, man, Chad. Rob averages, you think I get one of these. All of our credibility is just going down the hole here. All right. Um, okay. I don't believe in rebuilding seasons. That's got to be Musselman. That's Musselman. You got that one. Yeah. Okay. I, and I, I feel like he said that a lot. He did. Yep. That was one of his his go tos. Like every every uh, press conference, when when the media be asking him about like what's going on with this team, I feel like that was his go to mm-hmm. answer. All right, two left, one Muslim and one Jordan. Let's see what you can do. Okay. 
Every second on the floor, you're supposed to play hard. Regardless of the score, regardless of the time of game, you ask players to execute every time up and down the floor. I'm going to go Jordan. Muscleman. See, that sounded like a coach quote. I yeah. thought you were you're trying to trick me. No, I, I actually had to cut myself off on that one because I, if I had kept reading it, I would have given it away. But yeah. So that full quote is, so Musselman was coaching the Patroons. They were up by 48 points with 30 seconds left, and he called a timeout because his team wasn't executing to the way that he wanted them to. Uh, so then Jordan's final quote, if you didn't remember that it was going to be Jordan, was, uh, I play to win, whether during practice or a real game, and I will not let anything get in the way of me and my competitive enthusiasm to win. See, and that one is worded like a, coming from a player. So yeah. I should. Yep. So, so I guess what we learned here is that um, Musselman is basically the same as Jordan. Right. If you are end up being the greatest of all time, all of those words pay off and they make a ton of sense. So I don't know if Musselman quite got there, um, but it was a fun little game to play because as I kept reading them, reading them, I was like, yeah, this is uh, this is going to be interesting. So, so yeah. Awesome. So, so they hire both of these guys kind of at the same time, like I said. And McKinney comes in, and Chad, wasn't McKinney fairly young for his position? He was. He was um, the second youngest GM in the league at the time. He was 32 years old when when they hired him. I think he was 33 when he was when the team was actually you know drafting and playing. Um, but the only other younger GM was the GM of the Orlando Magic, who was Rob Hennigan, and he was 30 years old. So at that time, I, I kind of looked because I was like. When I first saw McKinney, he was only 32. I'm like, man, was he the youngest GM ever? Mm-hmm. And I was trying to find that, and then right away I found the same year Ron Hennigan <laughs> was 30. But I, so then I looked, and I was like, okay, well, what was that common? And it, it really wasn't. I mean, there's was only three GMs under the age of 40 in the NBA, mm-hmm. and there was uh, the average age was like 49 and a half. So they were both, you know, unique in, in that they were younger than most, which I, I it doesn't come to any surprise for anybody you know if you're in your 30s and you're running the entire organization for a team um you know it yeah that's pretty young even in today's standards so there's not a lot of guys that were 30 or 32 running teams since then either well it also makes sense why he would have left a rising bulls dynasty team. you know with right. the bulls yeah. at the time to be given because he was given that opportunity at such a young age you know, and he said that in the first article that Star Tribune did with him, he mentioned why he was, he's like, look, these opportunities don't come around very often. And I, I know what that Chicago Bulls team is going to become, but I want to, you know, mm-hmm. I want a chance to, to put my mark on my own team. Um, so yeah, he took that opportunity. He, the other thing of interesting of it, for the people that don't know is Billy McKinney is an African-American. And I was wondering like, well, how many minorities served in that role? in the NBA and the NBA uh, as no surprise is a little bit ahead of the other leagues um, in terms of those types of positions. And so there were two other GMs um, who were minorities and, but they were both hall of fame players and Elgin Baylor and Bill Russell. So Billy McKinney still, he was a sort of nondescript NBA player. Mm -hmm. Um, He retired extremely early and became sort of a coach, scout, and within like a year or two, he was running his own team. So it's pretty remarkable. You know, yeah. what he... There wasn't a ton of reporting back at that time on that, on that position, but it would have been very interesting to get a few more quotes to really know what was going through the minds of Bob Stein, especially as a lead decision maker on that hire, to see what he really saw in McKinney to give him such an advancement at such a young age. Yeah, you know, and I did see some stuff where they said that he did, when they interviewed him, they just really liked him. They felt like, 
you know, he fit, you know, you hear, hear this today with the team with between Rosas and Ryan Saunders all time about culture. Mm-hmm. And that, that popped up in a couple of the articles I read back then too, which, you know, again, it's sort of a cliche thing to say, but I do think it's true. Um, so, you know, and this was before they hired Musselman and, you know, and as we'll find out, they, they didn't always see eye to eye. So there were some friction there, but at the time when they hired McKinney, you know, they, they hadn't made a decision on a coach yet. And so, um, and they, you know, oddly enough, the Star Tribune did talk about that. It was going to be McKinney's first item on his job or for his job to do would be to hire a head coach. And, you know, they, they had that same list of names, you know, like you said, Musselman was already on that short list before they hired McKinney. So I don't think he had a ton of say. So I think, he, you know, they, they might've consulted him, took his opinions and then still made the decision based on what they already sort of determined was the best fit. Um, and, you know, like you said, George Carl wasn't on that list prior to McKinney. So maybe he did bring him into the fold and, mm-hmm. and they did their due diligence on him and maybe vetted him out and still decided to go with Musselman. But I think to your point, Stein was pretty, committed to bringing in Musselman and probably, you know, again, we joke about it a lot in Minnesota. You have to be one of us to, yeah. to earn those sites. Of, one sites of, of us, one <laughs> of us. They all did, right? Mikhail, Flip, yeah. all these guys. Um, so that probably played into it with Musselman. You know, you, you're, you're talking about a, a league that a lot of the teams weren't even profitable. They're a, they're a brand new team in this city, in this market. So what, what's one way you can get fans on the seat? You hire a Gophers coach. The mm-hmm. Gophers were very popular in the Twin Cities. Um, so you bring in a former Gophers coach and Bill Musselman to help kind of put fans there, somebody that they would recognize and, you know, be able to be familiar with. Yeah. I mean, I just, I have a hard time believing that the thought process of putting McKinney, who did not have kind of a veteran experienced voice, in the same room with Bill Musselman, who had gone his entire career of just bullying people into doing exactly what he wanted to do, was really ever thought of as something that was going to work successfully, especially if you expected them to work together and make decisions as a team, which from all accounts, it sounded like they wanted them to kind of be 50-50 on, on personnel decisions and how the, where the franchise went. So, I, I mean, I'm not surprised that McKinney didn't last super long with the franchise, but Musselman, I mean, he just... He, if he wanted something, he would harass somebody. He'd call you at two in the morning. He would find you on the tennis court. He would join your gym. He would really, he'd find a connection through his mom to introduce him to somebody else who he could then convince to start an expansion franchise in the CBA. And then when that one folds, he would convince somebody else to buy another fran- expansion franchise in the CBA. And he just, his personality was just a force of nature, man, and he got from where he wa- from where he was to where he went by really just nonstop effort, nonstop willpower to really get him to get where he wants to go. So, yeah, and maybe that's what their rationale was, right? Like, you know, you're you've got a team. There's so much to do when you're building a new franchise, and so you go after a guy that well eats, sleeps, drinks basketball. That's all he's going to do, and he's going to do whatever he can to get his way, and then. You couple that with you bring in a GM or a you know director personnel player personnel yeah yeah personnel guy who's gonna who's young inexperienced and but is coming from another team that was sort of on the rise with in Chicago and you you think oh well maybe we got this bright young star what would what do we want to pair him with and maybe having a veteran coach now he wasn't a veteran in the NBA like he had the mm-hmm. one run with Cleveland mm-hmm. as you're gonna cover but he, you you have a guy that's 
filled all those roles. I mean, Musselman definitely had a long track record of coaching and coaching all over and coaching teams that were new or teams that had to scratch and claw for attention in the CBA and some of these places. So I can kind of see where their mindset might've been um, and why it makes sense. But yeah, without having those two guys in the room to kind of see how their personalities, because I don't, you know, McKinney's a, comes off as a very affable guy, yeah. you know, a people person, but he also doesn't come across as somebody who's just going to let people steamroll him either, right? He's a six foot tall, 160 pound guard that made the NBA. Those guys, that, think Allen Iverson, you know, he's not Allen Iverson, but think the mindset it takes when you're that small to get into the NBA and be successful. You have to be a fighter. You have to have a lot of determination and grit. And so even if McKinney didn't show it in the same ways that Musselman might have, you know, that's probably where they didn't see that was going to come out of him that he's not going to go in there and just be a yes man. No, it's uh, not going to roll over, but yeah. So yeah, it, I mean, yeah, hindsight being what it is, you can see why it didn't work, but I, at, going into it, you know, I can see some wisdom into trying to bring in somebody who's going to work their tail off and do whatever it is that they think they need to do to get what they want for a, a brand new franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, and then pair that guy with a young, but you know, rising star for in the, in the personnel world. It's yeah. just, you know, like, yeah, looking back at you, are like, well, yeah, that was sort of a disaster because you're going to need a GM or a personnel guy who's got 20 years, 30 years experience in the NBA to be able to put up with a, a personality like Musselman in order to hold his own water. Because Musselman's not going to listen to no. anything anybody says who's only 32 years old. Right. I mean, it's, it's kind of like what we talked about at the beginning with, with Tibbs and Layden. Layden right. was brought in and given such a large contract to kind of be the the balance to Tibbs and to talk him off ledges or to kind of help drive the decision making when Tibbs was focused on coaching and he really just be, ended up becoming a yes man because Tibbs was another force of will a force of nature that just stepped into a room and made decisions and it's not surprising because Tibbs was an assistant on Musselman's staff when they started and all throughout his career you were able to see who he was and you know hearing him bark on the sidelines you're not surprised that that's kind of who he was behind the scenes too but but yeah just some of, some of the parallels there are interesting and you had mm-hmm. um you mentioned the the one of us syndrome with uh with Musselman, you know, coming from the U of M. So Musselman got his first college job at a co- school called Ashland College and he was there for a few years. He started 10 and 10, but then he went 119 and 20 over his next 5 years. And his team led the nation in defense uh four of those years including an NCAA record 33.9 points allowed per game in in 68-69 and uh, defense became Musselman's calling card the rest of his career, but uh, that job, which was and Ashland wasn't a really a, a big scholarship offering NCAA school, but uh, that resume item, that experience, led him to be being given the position at the U of M. Uh, and he left Ashland for the U in 1971, and in 71-72, his first season there, he came in boisterous, he came in haughty, he made some grand proclamations and he he backed them up and they won their first big 10 championship in 53 years that year um and he had you know kind of a, a mishmash of players and one of them actually was uh dave winfield the former baseball or the famous baseball player he actually wrote the the introduction for this three titled book that i read <laughs> talking about uh how Musselman's push to never stop, never give up, always be the best kind of helped him be who he ended up being. But and was Winfield recruited for basketball? Because no, I mean, he was one of those three-star, three-sport guys. Like I know he was a, obviously a stud baseball player, but he's a big, he's a good football player. And basketball, like was that a guy that Musselman just 
saw on campus is like, damn, I need to have that guy. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> bigger than every well, guy I got. <laughs> so he was, uh, Winfield came in and he played on the freshman basketball team and decided it wasn't for him. And then he only played okay. inter- intramurals after that. And one of the okay. assistant coaches saw him playing intramurals and brought Moss down. And he said, you got to see this guy. And he watched him and he brought him and he said, please come try out for the varsity team, essentially. And he did. And he threw him on the, on the team. And he actually said, one who was quoted later saying, uh, Dave Winfield is the best rebounder I ever saw. Wow. So, um, and oddly enough, by the end of that season, that's, that team was down to really five, only five players that Musselman was able to, uh, to play. And he played them almost the entire game, every game. Um, on their way to the Big Ten Championship. And that was because of an event that I was not familiar with, but many people of the generation before us that grew up in Minnesota would be. Uh, There was a giant fight between Minnesota and Ohio State um, in which uh, two Minnesota players were accused of... (laughs) Accused is the wrong word, because I watched the video of this, and it didn't seem as bad as it was written about. But what, it wasn't like Ron Artest. And... No, it was not the Malice in the Palace. It wasn't when J.R. Smith speared Nate Robinson into the crowd at Madison Square Garden, which I was actually at, and that was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Even though I don't condone <laughs> condone violence, but um, but you know, so so near the end of the game, the crowd was getting you know rowdy, and two Minnesota players kind of need uh, Luke Witty, one of the Ohio State. Uh, best players in the groin knocked him to the ground and then stepped on his face which sounds awful which I, I you know it's it's not good um like i said watching the video i couldn't quite see how bad it really was so it was probably worse if you were in person but um but apparently you know that's that sparked off you know fans rushing the court players from both teams were on the court and muscleman was out there trying to you know hold players back but he really took the brunt of um of the criticism because of that. There were multiple news stories that came out, multiple magazines that came out really just throwing him under the bus for, you know, inciting crowds, inciting riots, having pregame routines that really got people ramped up for telling his team that it was win or, you know, win or nothing. And that Luke Witty needed to be taken out because he was their best player and they needed to stop him at all costs. And um, he really got kind of a, a black eye amongst the basketball community because of that fight. And, you know, it he was, yeah. He was like the John Kreese of uh, college basketball. I don't know who that is. John, you don't know John Kreese? I don't know John Cobra Kreese. Kai. Oh, John Kreese, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could have said the Cobra Second Kai. Place is nothing. Yeah. You're a loser. You're... <laughs> exactly. That is Bill Musselman. So every time you watch The Karate Kid from now on, Bill Musselman is the Cobra Kai uh, sensei. So, yeah, no, I like, him. I like him more. Right? I know. The Koala Kai guy. Yeah. So he he gets a black eye because of this, and of multiple players on the Gophers end up getting suspended for the rest of the season. Witty had to be taken off in a stretcher. He was hospitalized because of in- injuries, including to his eye. And they said it negatively impacted his basketball career forever. Um, and like I said, the season ended up being a success and Musselman improved his ability to coach. But if you had asked anybody in Minnesota, what they remembered about Bill, Bill Musselman from 1972, all the way until 1988, when he was hired with the Timberwolves, this would have been the moment that they would have pointed to. Yeah, and I, my dad, I don't think watched a lot of college basketball, but he was a sports fan, so he, you know, probably read about it in the paper and and whatnot. But I remember, you know, when the Timberwolves were when they hired him, and I was just a kid, so I had no idea who Musselman was. But I heard he had, you know, in the paper, it talked about him being a former Gopher coach. So I asked my dad, "Oh, is Bill Musselman a good coach?" And my dad, said, "Yeah, he's a good, he's a tough guy. He's, you know, that's how he would describe him. He didn't tell me anything about the fight or anything mm-hmm. like that either, but he did. He's just like, yeah, he's a really tough guy. Yeah, and so." 
you know, it's as Mike Tice would say, you know, being that Bobby Knight came came from the same town and it's a tough guy town. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that kind of um, Ohio, him being from Ohio is interesting because, like I said, he got his first NBA coaching position with the Cavs, you know, Cleveland, Ohio, and he really wanted to be successful there because that's where he's from. He wanted to uh, really do a good job there and make a name in Ohio and live there forever. But unfortunately, that didn't exactly go the way he hoped. He ended up probably being more hated in Ohio than he even was in Minnesota because of that fight. So, uh, yeah, Chad, you know the Stepien rule, right? Yes. Yeah, so in the NBA, teams aren't allowed to trade first-round draft picks in back-to-back years, and that is called the Stepien rule because in the early 80s, the Cleveland Cavaliers, as owned by Ted Stepien, traded away almost every first-round pick that they had. Um, and what they don't mention often when you hear about the Stepien rule is that the coach and the decision-maker during that time was Bill Musselman. Is that you know, we talk about all these connections back to Minnesota, but it's kind of funny. It's just down to me. They make a rule that you can't trade consecutive first round picks, but if a team signs a guy uh, outside of the the rules, you could take away all their first round picks right. and as the league and ruin the yeah, ruin the franchise that way. Years upon years of trying to crawl your way out because you were dumb enough to put something on paper. Damn hypocrite. We'll have to spend like five episodes on that because I still can't wrap my head around how bad of a event that was for the Timberwolves. If you don't know what we're talking about, you are in for a treat, my friend. <laughs> but but yeah, so so Musselman gets hired by the Cavaliers and Ted Stepien bought the team in nineteen eighty. And you could tell you knew immediately that this was gonna be a mistake. Like he was quoted his first quote in the like the in arena magazine that you that you get when you like walk in, you buy a program, you get the in arena magazine too. He had a quote in one of the very first ones that said, "This is not to sound prejudiced, which is always a, an amazing way to start off a quote." Right. But, Basically, you're just screaming, "I'm a racist." <laughs> right. <laughs> so this is you, this is already going well. But he says, "Not to sound prejudiced, but half the squad should be white. White people should have white heroes. I myself can't equate to black heroes. I'll be truthful. I respect them, but I need white people." It's in me, and I think the Cavs have too many blacks, 10 of 11. You need a blend of white and black. I think that draws, and I think that's a better team. And this was, like, almost day one of his ownership, and he's under fire immediately, and as you can only imagine. And even in 1980, this was just not looked upon positively. So, No, I mean, they're the one league that has three African-American GMs or yeah. you know head of personnel guys, whatever, whatever their titles were. I think Elgin Baylor and um, Bill Russell had the GM titles, but I mean they were ahead of. I mean baseball. I don't. It was at least ten years later before they had their first person of color. Mm-hmm. Maybe twenty years later, um, and NFL same same deal. Like so, basketball. Like yeah, this really wouldn't fly no. in NBA circles. So this so already off to a bad start. But Musselman gets hired pretty soon after he's. But he was hired originally as the director of player personnel on June 7th, uh, 1980. So they had Stan Albach as their head coach at the time. So Musselman was hired on the 7th. They had the NBA draft on the 8th, so he really hadn't had any time to scout anybody. And then Albach left the head job, the head coaching position on the 10th, and Musselman was made the head coach on the 11th. So over four days after being hired, not only had he had to conduct a draft that he hadn't been able to do any scouting for, but he was made head coach instead of head of player personnel which maybe lobbied for right i mean i'm sure well, he wanted to be coach but um, like flipped it you know yeah and his second run here 
Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I'll hire a coach, Glenn. Don't worry about it. I'll hire a coach. And then, well, I couldn't find anybody. Nobody wanted to coach this team, so I'm going to do it. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> so many options. I mean, Mike Malone was just sitting out there as oh, a coach. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're we're getting 30 years down the line here, but yeah. 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 Um, so anyway, so Musselman has to take over. And as it, at his introductory press conference, Stepien guarantees the playoffs, which immediately puts Musselman into win-now mode. Um, yeah. You have a team of half white guys, whether they can play or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> first year coach, no first round picks yep. and guarantee a playoffs. Yeah. So they, and they had already traded away three first round picks in coming years um, before Musselman even took over. Um, but so he's put into win now mode and there was a, a quote that Musselman was told by Stepien at least three times during the season, win tonight or you're fired, which I thought was only like a remember the Titans type thing. <laughs> You know, but apparently this is going on in the NBA as well. So Stepien forces Musselman to trade away Footsie Walker early in the season. And that's an awesome name. I mean, that is one of the legendary that, NBA names. That is a great name. Why didn't Pearl Jam use that name instead of Mookie Blaylocks? Right? <laughs> so so he, trades, he has to trade away Footsie Walker, who's really his only point guard during training camp due to contract negotiations. And this is Stepien saying, I'm not going to pay him. So you have to trade him away. So Musselman traded their 84, 1984 first-round pick with Footsie Walker to Dallas to get Mike Bratz, and that pick ended up becoming Sam Perkins. And then after one exhibition game, Musselman demanded that Campy Russell be traded the next day, who was another—this is just an all-time team of names at this point. Yeah, it really is. I was just going to yeah. say that. Like, how do they— like? that's more marketable than five or six white guys on a team. <laughs> yeah. You got Footsie Walker and Campy Russell out there. Yeah. I don't know what else you're going to do. They should have their own sitcom. Oh my God. Footsie and Campy. Yeah. Campy and Footsie. You got to come up with a good name for that one. But, but yeah, so Musselman grows so disgruntled at Campy Russell that he demands he be traded the next day. Um, one of the guys that they signed right before the draft, Dave Robish, they signed him to a four year contract and he only lasted 14 games before being traded. And then one of the, Lesser known players on the roster at the time was actually Bill Lambeer in his uh, second season with in the NBA. But Stepien called Musselman before a game and demanded that Lambeer start because he wanted to be recognized for having identified Lambeer and they, he wanted to show everybody how good he was. And Musselman, in a you can't tell me what to do move, played Lambeer zero minutes that game and played Robish 48 minutes. And everybody was upset at him and he never told anybody why he did it. But then Stepien pressed him on the issue. So the only way that he could justify starting Lambeer was if he traded Robish. So a guy they had just signed to a four-year contract, they traded away because Stepien had told him to start another guy. <laughs> so, and I mean, it's still going. So they had traded Campy Russell and they got Bill Robinzine. Robinzine? 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 I don't know. Weird names back then. They had gotten Bill Robinzine back and they traded him along with first-round picks in 1983 and 1986 to Dallas for Jerome Whitehead and Richard Washington, two guys who you've obviously never heard of. And those picks ended up became, be, becoming Derek Harper, my namesake, and uh, Roy Tarpley. So two guys that you have heard of. Right. And eventually, at that point, the NBA places a moratorium on Cleveland's ability to make trades. And they said, no, you cannot make any more trades because you're just being too haphazard and you're being too ridiculous with what you're doing. And... They hold on to that until eventually they, they pull the moratorium, but they say, we have to approve all of your deals. And that's just, that is just a little bit of the history into why the Stepien rule exists. Because at that point, 
they were so in debt in first round picks to other teams that they had no chance of bringing that team back from the dead. And Musselman was eventually fired twice and brought back by, uh, by Stepien. But after he was finally fired and finally, uh, out of the team, Stepien sold the team to our good friends, Gordon and George Gund and the NBA in retribution for all of the poor decisions that have been made by Stepien and, and a uh, Musselman gave the guns first round picks in 83, 84, 85, and 86 to convince them to buy the team and get Stepien out of the league. Jeez. See, so, well, I wonder if they would have done that if Glenn sold the team. Right. If they gave us their picks. I'm still, I'm still bitter. Yeah. If Glenn, after they took all the picks, they just sold it back. Oh, you can have them all back. There you go. Yeah. But yeah, I, I thank you for sticking with me during that like monologue about the 1980 to 82 Cleveland Cavaliers and all of the poor decisions that they made that just kind of ruined a franchise. But well, as you know, tortured Wolves fans, you have to look at that and say, wow, that is way worse than any <laughs> stretch than the Timberwolves have ever had. So bad. I mean, that, that puts that makes Khan look like a Hall of Famer. Khan is the worst. I mean, literally the worst. You put them, You put the whole list of all the front office people in Timberwolves history together, and I'm putting Khan at the bottom. Yeah. Yep. But he still put together that roster with Adelman that was legitimately fun to watch and had a, a little bit of potential with with Kirilenko and Pack and Rubio and and yep. Love. It's just he has something to lean on, just even a little bit. And Musselman and Stepien had nothing, and that it just it doesn't get lower than this. Yeah, it's that's pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. We spent a good amount of time on Musselman, and there's just so much more to dive into. But <laughs> I don't know. What what did McKinney do after he was with the Wolves? I don't want to dive too much into his Wolves time because we'll get into that. But where did he go? Right. After that? Yeah. So he goes to Detroit. So he, you know, as you can sort of tell from uh, the the Musselman personality quirks, they didn't get along so well. So <laughs> after you know two two years, well three years, but two drafts. With Minnesota, he left and took the position with the Detroit Pistons, which was a tough spot to go to because they were a, you know, somewhat of a dynasty. I mean, they won two titles um, and they had all these aging veterans on the team. And so he was tasked with coming in and they, they weren't really looking to do a rebuild. They thought they could still be competitive by just doing some tweaks. So he gets there in 90. Well, he took the job in 92. His first draft there was a 93 um, and he, they had the 10th and the 11th pick in that draft. And his first two picks were at number 10, he took Lindsey Hunter. Mm-hmm. And at number 11, he took Allen Houston. And the funny thing is, in D- the Detroit area, he was pr- heavily criticized for taking Allen Houston at 11. Lambasted, N- not, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And no, no heat for Hunter, which was odd to me because Isaiah was still there. I mean, Isaiah was 32, mm-hmm. I, I believe, 33, somewhere in there. Uh, so still, you know, he was... He had a lot of miles on him. They were a perennial playoff team and, you know, all that. But he was starting to wear down. Um, and so that first season there with, you know, after his draft, they finished the season 20 and 62. But Isaiah played 58 games that year. Bill Embiid only played 11. And, you know, a lot of the other guys were already gone. So they, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't the same Detroit Piston bad boy team that you, people remember, even though they had, two of the biggest faces from that yeah. team. Um, and then the following year, the 94-95 draft, he selected Grant Hill, number two overall. And again, in both drafts, I went and I looked, 
in the 93-94 draft, there was not really anybody down that list that were better players. And, you know, Lindsey Hunter wasn't a all-star, but he was a, a legit, mm-hmm. you know, rotational mm-hmm. guy. And Alan Houston had a very nice career, particularly in New York. Um, I mean, he, he was did, an all-star level talent easily. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And the only guy that was down that list that you could say was better would be Sam Cassell, who nobody picked. Yeah, I mean, he they weren't taking that high. Fourth, that draft, yeah. And so, and uh, even then, you know, who knows? Maybe Sam Cassell goes to Detroit at 10 and Hunter goes to Houston and, you know, Sam Cassell never becomes the guy that he does because Sam Cassell sort of emerged late in that year mm-hmm. um, as a rookie. It wasn't like he was came out of the gate just bombing clutch threes. That was like, he made that playoff run and all of a sudden, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in players. If they get hot in the right moment, it's sort of the Van Vliet sort yeah. of yep. thing where changes their whole get, career, changes their whole career, makes them a completely different player. Um, and some guys just aren't put in those kind of positions. And, you know, so who knows what would happen? Well, there, but... maybe if Sam Cassell goes to Detroit, he's still the same player, but he's not as confident and he doesn't do the big balls dance in 2004 and ruin our chance at an NBA title. Maybe he doesn't even come here. You know, who knows? Like maybe, maybe he becomes a lifelong piston and, <laughs> <laughs> He's one of my favorite guys. No, I'm still believing that there was a road to him coming here and us winning the title because he just chooses not to do the big balls dance. If, he, if we were just been healthy that year, that when well, the playoffs, we didn't have mm-hmm. to go to Derek Martin off the street to play point guard. KG is starting point guard. Yeah, yeah. And Derek Martin is his only backup with you know, T. Hud. Uh, the stress of both worlds, or whatever. Anyway, we digress again. But yeah, he. Uh, but McKinney, I, my takeaway from. McKinney and all this was that he had an eye for talent. I mean, mm-hmm. he wasn't like what we just went through with Bill Musselman and Stepien in Cleveland. I mean, he he picked the right guys. He scouted the right guys in Chicago, scouting, you know, Scotty Pippen. Um, and it's weird to me. I and I couldn't see any reasons why. And of course, people aren't going to write articles about why people didn't get a second chance unless there's clear evidence to it. Maybe he just didn't want to. Um, you know, he did. Today, he's the mayor of his hometown um, in Illinois. And so he's, it's possible that he just got into politics and got into other stuff. I I know later, much later than the Detroit run, there was other articles that I read about him, about things he did in the community and stuff. So that's always been a a passion of his. But my point being is, he seems like one of those guys that never really got a fair shake or got another chance. I mean, he took a really difficult situation coming to Minnesota, which was a, you know, an expansion franchise, which is always difficult. And he only got two years there because he didn't get on coach. And then he goes to Detroit where they're used to success, used to winning everything. And then he's in the rebuild. He's making the right picks, but there's no patience there. They want to win now. And so he, you know, the team he built, like once Grant Hill was there, that team was sort of back in the playoffs, not that long after he left mm-hmm. again. And right. that was his team, you know. So he just comes off to me as one of those guys that probably should have got another chance at – running a team you know down the road and and that's kind of the it that was his last stop as at least in that role so yeah kind of interesting. yeah i mean mckinney should have gotten another chance but i'll bet you after going through that cavaliers history you're wondering how did muscleman get another chance because at this point all we really we've really gotten into is sure he had a successful successful run with the gophers but he was known for a, a giant fight that he was uh, kind of presiding over, and he drove an NBA team into the ground. So how in the world, six years later, is he back being given another chance in the NBA? And the answer is really the CBA, which at the time was the kind of the AAA level uh, NBA 
affiliate players got called up dropped down they had team affiliations between the nba and the cba teams all the time but so musselman coached for uh, multiple different franchises but over five years he won four the last four years he won four straight championships in the cba um, including and culminating in his final season with the albany patroons having a 48 and 6 record which at that time was the best winning percentage ever in either the cba or the nba um so he 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 rolled through uh, a team in Sarasota. He talked somebody into starting a franchise there. He was that was his, his worst experience. That was his first year in the CBA where he really didn't understand what could happen with um, with players getting called up and losing your best players all the time. But he went six and thirteen and got fired. But then he talked another group into starting another team in Tampa Bay. They were the Thrillers. Um, he found a bunch of players. He had gotten better. Um, at keeping a list of players who were available, scouting all the time, and he won two straight championships in Tampa Bay before that team was sold and moved up to Rapid City, South Dakota. He won another championship in Rapid City before moving on to Albany. So he he bounced around all over the place, but that is really where he made the name for himself, where he was then respected again as a coach. And all of the quotes were, and, and I think uh, Stein said this, but he said every time when he was looking at Musselman, everybody that talked to him either said, He's a hell of a coach and, or he's a hell of a coach, but, and, <laughs> and that's, uh, that was the, the only two opinions about Bill, Bill Musselman. So, um, he spent a lot of time in the CBA and a lot of the names that he brought on to his team ended up sticking with him into the, into the Timberwolves. Uh, Sam Mitchell was on his team for a year. Sidney Lowe was his mainstay. He was a starting point guard for three of his championship teams. Scotty Brooks was on a team. Todd Murphy was on a team. Tony Campbell. Uh, Lowhouse, Brad Lowhouse. Brad Lowhouse, I think, rolled through there. Um, and, but oddly enough, the most interesting name that I found when I was going through his history was that uh, his final year with the Albany Patroons, uh, Mitchell Wiggins, the father of our, our favorite 6'7 small forward, Andrew Wiggins, was actually on his team after having been uh, more or less excommunicated from the NBA due to, to drug use. So uh, he came we, in. Keep, keep weaving this tight little tapestry of Timberwolves. Right, your connections. Right. <laughs> Pretty soon, everybody in Timberwolves history is going to be connected to somebody else, one way or another. It's going to be seven degrees of Bill Musselman. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, Mitchell Wiggins played with him for a few games. Uh, had a little bit of a, a run in, and I think he missed a couple games before he got traded away. But, uh, but yeah, when I rolled across that, I was like, oh man, I haven't heard about Mitchell Wiggins for a while, and definitely didn't know his his basketball uh, history. So, but yeah, lots of guys. They all ended up playing for a lot of those guys ended up playing with for him on the Timberwolves once you got that opportunity too. Well, and that's, you know, sort of my last um, item that I take away from the Billy McKinney stuff that I looked into was the, that first rookie draft, which we'll cover in much more detail. Definitely Musselman had his preference for guys who he was familiar with and who, mm-hmm. who played with them. So, and you see that in the expansion draft and some of the guys he took, you, you all the guys you just named that played for him in the CBA, um, I think did Randy Brewer play for him with the Gophers? I mean, it, there was lots of connections. Yep. To Flip Musselman Saunders the, played for him on the Gophers too. Did he? Yeah. So yeah, they had lots of connections with the guys that they they took. But it, going up into that draft, you know, and, and as most Timberwolves fans will remember, their first first round pick ever was Pooh Richardson. Um, going into that, the the Wolves had sort of three guys they were looking at, and it was Pooh, Mookie Blaylock, and Tim Hardaway, and you know. Musselman wanted Tim Hardaway and McKinney really wanted Pooh Richardson. So, mm-hmm. and there was reasons for that, which we'll cover in, in, on a future episode, but 
he McKinney did get his way. He got Purichsen. Um, the Star Tribune talks about that being in 2008. They were in an article and they, and they quoted, which I thought was sort of funny, a little bit unfair, but they said the Richardson selection does not rate among the Wolves' all-time draft blunders. But what it does, though, is remind us that the team's richest tradition, almost always coming out of the first round of the NBA draft with the wrong player, started from day one. <laughs> and so it wasn't like that he was a bad player, but of the three guys, he was probably third yeah. that you would have wanted. I mean, you can make an argument that him and Mookie were similar. I, I would take Mookie Blaylock's career over Pooh Richardson's, but Tim Hardaway, surefire number one out of those three guys. Um, you know, and I think that article is a little bit unfair because there's a lot of times where the Wolves just, they had bad luck too because they, you know, like the Shaquille O'Neal draft, there was really four guys in that draft. We get the third pick. I think Leitner was the right pick over Jimmy Jackson. So it's like, but they couldn't get, there was no path to get Shaq or Zoe. No, so, I mean, for no. years upon years, it was known that if there were two good players in the draft, the Timberwolves would get the third pick. Yeah, so it wasn't so much that they were taking the wrong guy in a, in a lot of those years. It mm-hmm. was that they were left with the wrong guy. Right. So, um, but. Yeah, I mean, as you said, we'll talk, we're going to talk about the uh, rookie draft, 1989 rookie draft, uh, the original expansion draft that started it all, that got a few players on this roster and started drama for the franchise almost immediately. So, We'll be back next week uh, with another episode of Howl History. Chad, we have preseason basketball for the Timberwolves this weekend. You going to watch? I am. It's uh, Saturday nights. My house is tradition to watch uh, the UFC fight. So there is a pay-per-view this weekend, but we'll be watching that. We have two screens, so we'll watch that, and we'll watch the preseason. There you go. We've been, uh, we've been, we're record cutters, so we've been on Hulu for a while. So we, we lost FSN a couple months ago. So Oh, no. We're going to have to... Uh, Maybe make bite the bullet and move back to a Spectrum cable, which is all we can get down here. We can't even get Comcast. I thought Comcast was literally the worst company in the world until I moved out of Comcast range, and now I have to have another company that's a redheaded stepchild of Comcast. Yeah, I have uh, friends who moved. They were next door neighbors, and they moved, and they they were just texting me asking me to you know <laughs> what other cable options are, are there for mm-hmm. them because they can't get Comcast either. And I have Comcast, and I've been super frustrated, but. Um, a small little plug for an app called Trim. I don't know if you've heard of it, but I haven't. It's, it's an app where you put in your cable bill and your cell phone bill and different bills, and they periodically will go and try to renegotiate your terms for you. There you go. And then they, the way they make their money is they get a like a thirty percent cut or whatever of whatever they save you. Well, I got a nice little email from them last last week saying from actually from Comcast saying that my bill is going to go down about seventy eight dollars a month, which that's a pretty big yeah. savings each month, so I was pretty excited. So now I'm like, I'm a huge fan of of Xfinity and Comcast right now. <laughs> yeah, for the right price, absolutely. Yeah. So, all right, I'll find some way to watch the game. We'll talk about it next week. Hopefully uh, somebody shows out, Culver shows something he hasn't before. Maybe he'll play without an undershirt for the first time. Maybe he'll get, he'll, he might get more minutes. I mean, it sounds like Ryan's going to play at everybody, you know, kind of the same amount of minutes. The, yeah. the main guys aren't going to play big minutes, and, you know, so everybody will probably pay play those 15 to 20 minutes we god knows we have a enough guys on the roster to <laughs> yeah they need to figure a few things out and they yeah. give them some run but it'll be nice seeing cat back on the court it'll be good to see these guys it'll be anthony edwards first time in terms uniform so nothing but excitement here ricky back all that yeah just it'll be fun unending enthusiasm exactly. if you can't hear it in my voice it's it's showing in my body at the moment that's as excited as i've ever seen you before we go do you remember the um the Tim Duncan commercial, the Derrick Rose Foot Locker commercial, where I think Derrick Rose called him to tell him about there was like sale week at Foot Locker, and Tim Duncan had to tell him about how excited he was, and he's like, 
I'm so excited right now. I just knocked over I, a glass and then it shuts, cuts to him and he like purposefully knocks over a glass. <laughs> I I didn't remember it until you just said it and it's coming back to me. But All right, everybody's got to go YouTube the uh, Tim Duncan uh, Foot Locker commercial because that was one of the, the funniest moments that I've ever seen. So Great. All right, we're going to leave it at that. Thanks, Chad. Yep, take care, man. Have a good week. Yeah, bye.